Welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. You may also recognize me as the author of numerous leadership books, including the series out from Harper Collins called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, Volumes 1 and Volume 2, where each year I take 30 guests from that year's podcast and I write a transformational insight about something they've shared on the air. The books are easy, breezy, and fast reads, kind of like chicken soup for the leadership soul. The books are in print, audio, digital, and now in video from Lit Video Books, releasing Master Mentors Volume 3 in the fall. Our guest today is the prolific author, contagiously positive leadership coach and expert. His name is Michael Bungay-Stanier. He's joined us from Toronto today. You know him, of course, from his seminal book, The Coaching Habit. This book has sold an insane amount of books, and his most recent release is called How to Begin, Start Doing Something That Matters. Michael, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, happy to be here. And now I've got a goal, of course, which is to make your next volume of interesting people from your podcast I'm going to be really offended if I don't make the list of 30 people, so I'm sweating it here. I'm well, going to do I, the best I can. I appreciate your desperate attempt to be in Volume 4. I think I have an opening in Volume 9, so stand by for that, okay? We'll <laughs> see. Right, if, I'll see if I can fit you in. I appreciate, um, I appreciate the call out. Michael, we've wanted you to come on the podcast for years. We're now in our fifth year. It's actually a great time because your newest release, How to Begin, is a gift. It's a thoughtful gift on helping people set goals, how to understand... Uh, the kind of triumphant aspect of your passions and your fears and your joys. And we'll talk about that for a few minutes. First of all, remind me, this book has sold how many copies? Your book, The Coaching Habit. Oh, I've lost track a little bit, but it's somewhere between 1.2 and 1.5 million copies, which is, if anybody knows anything about books, that's about 1.2 to 1.5 million copies more than I was expecting it to sell, especially because it's self-published, which makes it even more remarkable. But yeah, this book has really just taken off. What did you do with all the money? It wasn't get a great background for your podcast. What did you do with all that money? I'm actually filming this from my personal satellite slash space shuttle up in space at the moment. That's where it went. Um, and this, this, this shirt, I mean, it looks like cotton, but it's actually made out of beaten titanium. So I've been spending it on trivial stuff. Well, at least it matches your earrings. Hey, congrats. <laughs> the book, I mean, the book really has become seminal in not just the coaching world, but really in the leadership world. It's really more of a how to be a great, how to be good at relationships. That's in essence what the, the, the right. value proposition. Uh, I don't know anybody who isn't either a coach or coaching in their role as leader that probably hasn't read this book. Right. Talk a bit about the, the big learnings from the coaching habit. Sure. The starting point is to realize, just as you've said, Scott, that for anybody in the world of leadership today, you have to have coaching or being more coach-like as part of your repertoire. It's not the only thing you do, but it needs to be something that you want to do. And for a lot of people, coaching comes with a lot of baggage. <laughs> like it's weird, it's HR, it's touchy-feely, it's people in kind of pastel caftans and incense. And they're like, I'm a normal person doing a normal job. I don't want woo-woo, I want something practical. So the real goal with this book was to unweird coaching for people so that they could make it an everyday way of showing up. So we even stopped using the word coaching because lots of people don't want to be coaches. They just want to be them doing their job in their role. So I'm like, how do you be more coach-like? And the key insight, the key behavior change actually is this. 
Can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? Because people are advice giving maniacs. <laughs> they, you know, somebody starts talking in three seconds into the conversation, you're like, oh, I think I know what I need to tell them. So now you're fake listening while you're just waiting for them to get to the end of it. And then you interrupt and you tell them the thing that they want to do. And whilst there is always a place for advice, it's just a little later than you think. So it's not never give advice. That would be stupid advice. But it's can you just stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a bit more slowly? And the book kind of lays out what I think are the seven essential questions to help you do that. Michael, we're going to spend most of our time today talking about goal setting and how to begin. This book we just talked about, The Coaching Habit. The tagline is, say less, ask more, and change the way you lead forever. About two weeks ago, uh, I saw Adam Grant. I think it was on the CBS Sunday Morning program. We interviewed Adam in the last year. And one of his sound bites was that most of the advice we give others is, in essence, the advice we should take ourselves. Will you, <laughs> will you talk a little bit about... What are a couple of really profound tips that our listeners and viewers might be thinking about today to implement the tagline of your book, say less, ask more, yeah. and change the way you lead forever? Well, there's a, there's a tactical level and then there's a kind of deeper self-work level. The tactical level is to have a couple of go-to questions that you really love and just practice asking them a bit more often. You know, the, one of the questions in the book a, a book, a question I say is actually the best coaching question in the world is simply, and what else? <laughs> and the insight behind that question is their first answer is never their only answer, and it's rarely their best answer. But because we're wired the way we are, so often we accelerate into, oh, they're giving me an answer. Let's go with that. And one of the most powerful ways of taming your advice monster is to stay curious by asking, and what else? The other tip I might give you is to pick two of the other questions from the book, the, uh, the kickstart question and the learning question, which are the first and the seventh question in the book. The kickstart question is just a great way to start most conversations, which is what's on your mind? When you ask that question, you get into the juicy part of the conversation more quickly. It can, it can revolutionize those tedious one-to-one -one meetings that you might be having. And then like the, 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 the learning question, which is what was most useful or most valuable here for you is how you stick the landing, how you help the, the learning and the wisdom and the aha moments truly sink in. So if you start and finish with a question and add and what else in the middle, you're a long way down the path to staying curious a little bit longer. Michael, riff a little bit on the concept of the advice monster. Uh, I, I've practiced this a little bit with my wife, Stephanie's full-time stay-at-home mom, very competent, well-educated, and, and yep. she'll mention to me sometimes a problem she's experiencing or some conflict she's got going on with a friend or a family member, and in my attempt not to give her any advice, I also say nothing, and that, that silence is kind of conspicuous because then she'll say to me, <laughs> did you not hear what I say? And if I say, right, right. and my response might be, yes, I just, I, I don't know that I have any advice for you. Yeah. Well, of course I do, yeah. but I won't experience that wrath by giving her the advice. So what, there's, there's different ways to approach this monster. Riff on the it advice is. monster. Yeah, you know, I love, I love your awareness of it because awareness is actually more than half the battle. So if you, uh, there are three, three advice monsters. Uh, tell it, save it, and control it. Tell it is that kind of nagging part of your brain that says if, you, if you're not telling them the answer, you're not adding value, you're not doing your job, you're failing. Save it 
is the sense that if I don't make everybody feel safe and, and make it easy for people, if I'm not protecting everybody from everything, then I'm failing. And then control it is, if, I'm, if I don't have my hand on the steering wheel, chaos is going to come and I'm going to fail. So I've got to control everything. So those are kind of the deeper, you know, to get into jargon, kind of ego states that drive our advice monster. But Scott, for you and your wife, when your wife says something and you're like, oh, I can feel the need to give her advice, but I know that's probably not what she's after. So what should I do instead? Well, there are two things you could do. The first is just express empathy. And you can just say, that sounds hard, or that sounds messy, or that sounds complicated, or that must have been difficult, or that must have been tough, or that must have been surprising. You're acknowledging the, the essential truth of what she's just told you. You're not, you're not asking a question. You're not providing solution. You're just helping her be seen and be heard. And then if you're like, I really need to do something here, and you're not sure what to do, well, rather than trying to figure it out yourself, just ask. You go, how can I help? <laughs> well, what do you want from me? Or what would be the most useful thing that I could do or say right now to, to help you out with this? And sometimes you're like, I just need to talk it out. Sometimes she's like, I don't need anything else because I've done what I needed to do. Sometimes she's like, do you have any ideas or solutions around this? So you actually help, you kind of co-create what's best for that conversation. Well, none of that is fun. I, I want to say to her, <laughs> well, I hate that person too. Let's go yeah. slash her tires. That's much more fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might work as well. I mean, who knows? Um, you know, strangely, it doesn't, it doesn't But you work. can do that. You can like, yeah, man, that, that sounds terrible. I, I experience her as an awful person as well. Ah, I'd be frustrated as well. You, you're not having to, you're not telling her what to do. You're just saying, man, I get it. I really get it. That must be hard for you as well. We're here today with marriage therapist, Michael. Hel okay, let's talk. <laughs> so let's talk about this current book because I think it's got a great purpose for all of us to sort of uh, focus our passions yeah. on doing something great. Now, here's why I say that. Uh, today is Tuesday. We're taping this interview on a Tuesday, and I read your book this past Saturday. I was at a Thank restaurant, you. and I sat down for several hours, and I uh, read through your book. And th at the end of the book, I posted on my social media the fact that as a white American male, the average lifespan for someone like me is about 78 years old. And at 54, yep. I've lived more mm -hmm. than 70% of my life. And the horrifying aspect of that is, is that my boys that are 8, 10, and 12 will lose their father statistically when they are 31, 34, and 36. Right. And so I said, so instead of finishing Michael's book, I'm going to shut down and go to my son's basketball game, where, by the way, he scored 24 of 36 points. I'm glad I stopped reading your book and went to his basketball game. And then, of course, cool. the social vitriol came. No, 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 because of your wealth, you'll live to 88, which was horrifying, living to 88. My point is this. In the opening page of your book, you say the following. Don't regret a life half-lived. When my laptop starts up, it displays a date, September 15th, 2043. Yep. It's a destination. My death, let me continue. Kevin Kelly created the death date, the endpoint, a countdown clock that tells you your theoretical moment of demise based on actuarial tables. Kevin believes we can do one big project every five years. So, first publishing this book in 2022 and assuming that my death date is about right, I've got time left for 
about four big projects. It was very sobering, and I think very, and I found it like invigorating to think about your death date, because especially for guys like me, perhaps we're similar in age, 55 soon for me, you know, I've lived 70% of my life, I've got three or four big projects, right, or more. Talk about why that was so, like, focusing and invigorating for you. Yeah, you know, um, one of my favorite movies, Australian movie by a director called Baz Luhrmann, he's, he's you might have seen his name recently because he did the Elvis movie. But his first movie was called Strictly Boring. It's like boring dancing in rural Australia. It was fantastic and funny. And the, the, the theme of that, something that one of the key characters said time and time again, was a life lived in fear is a life half lived. And like you, I'm about 40, 54, 55. And I'm thinking, I don't want a life half lived. I want to have a life which is thrilling for me, lights me up is important in that I contribute to making the world a little bit better and a, a life where I keep learning, where I keep growing, where I keep evolving to be whatever the next best version of me might be. So I wrote this book kind of thinking of two different scenarios. First of all, anybody who is at a crossroads, and I think there are probably three main crossroads we get to in our lives. One is in your 20s where you're, you know, you've finished university perhaps, or you're, you're kind of, you're, your brain's being fully developed and you're like, what am I actually doing with my life? Now that I'm in my mid twenties, I'm actually getting to make some of those choices. The next crossroad is kind of in your mid thirties, the classic midlife crisis moment where you, <laughs> you realize you spent the last 10 years or 15 years doing some stuff and you've got somewhere, but was this actually the destination you wanted? And then the final crossroad is where you and I are, Scott, which uh, in our fifties, we might be coming to kind of towards the end of a successful career, or maybe we're empty nesters for the first time. But you're now thinking, I've got a, I've got a good 20 years left. I don't want to play golf the whole time. I want to do something more than that. So it was about helping people find a worthy goal. That's the key concept in this book, a worthy goal to channel your, your heart and your resource and your time and your effort so that you can find something thrilling for you, important for the world, and daunting that keeping you on your own learning growth. Michael, I think the timing of this conversation is especially pressing because I don't know of an adult that didn't come out of the pandemic having their values right. just, you know, rocked. You know, r recently, Lisa Marie Presley passed in her 50s, right. 54. And although she and I have nothing in common in terms of our lifestyle, <laughs> I can oh, assure you. Oh, come on, your sultry eyes, your no, pouty yeah, lips. Well, the got, sultry you, you eyes, we, sultry eyes is common, but you know, our lifestyle <laughs> beyond that, I'm sure had nothing in common. I, I don't know, know much about the nature of her death other than what's been reported in the press, but it, it certainly shook me to my core because my father right. passed this past summer about seven months ago in his mm. mid 80s, and it just has me thinking about my own mortality, right? And, right? and how much time do I want to spend in email versus playing kickball with my boys? And how much should I right. be spending in my, or investing in my 401k versus going on vacation? And so I'm trying, right. I'm kind of having that, that, I wouldn't call it a midlife crisis, I just have it, I call it kind of a crisis of priorities in, 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 a, in a good way, in a crisis of how do I want to spend my time mm. We're gonna talk about goal setting in a moment here, but to what extent have you had a similar kind of journey where you recognize you've lived more than half of your life as well, and yeah. how are you choosing to prioritize where you spend your time? Yeah, and my dad died a year and a half ago as well, so we've got Sorry. this kind of common 
mortality moment where we're like, okay, I'm the, I'm the oldest child. So I'm like, I'm the eldest son. <laughs> it's now getting real around that. So I, I, you know, they say you need to you write the books that you need. So I've used this model in the, the How to Begin book, for my own thinking. And there are three places that you can think about a worthy goal. One is what you're doing. One is the relationships you have. And the third is who you're being. And I've tried to go to the who am I being and ask myself, what would it mean to be a writer? Now, that's surprising because I've got seven or eight books that I've written, so I'm clearly an author. But I, I, I've written those books squeezed in around you know, doing emails and doing all sorts of other stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, it feels like a calling for me to make writing a more central part of my identity. And then what flows from that is the relationships I have and the work that I do and how I structure my days and what I do do and what I don't do. So um, I think that similar quest, which is think about your life, <laughs> really, no matter where you are in all of this, think about your life and be going, what, you know, what, what will grow me? What will fulfill me? What feels like a contribution to the world? For me, writing books is one of the best ways I can make the world a little bit better. And that's the, that's the focus for me. Because I, I want to try and be a writer. I'm trying that on as an identity and I'm seeing the ripples in terms of how I structure my life and what I what I say no to, because that's 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 another one of the questions from the coaching habit book. But it's really appropriate here, which is if I'm going to say yes to this, what must I say no to? Yeah. And any transition involves a death and a denial and annihilation. You're actually saying no to some stuff so that you can step into the future version of who you are. I can relate to that. Every every yes is a no to something else. Uh, one right. of my favorite podcast guests and authors in humans is a man named John Acuff. He is out of Nashville yeah. and hey, has written yeah. many books, including one called Finish. And I love this book because he has an exercise, go around your house and find out how many chapsticks you had. Well, we had 43 or 46 chapsticks <laughs> around our house. I had, I had a big glass jar of all the chapsticks that we've never finished. Well, that, explain, actually, that explains your gorgeous lips. So well, you know, well, there's some well, upside to that. Once again, thank you for that inappropriate <laughs> overture. I do, however, I'm pretty good at finishing. But yeah. your book is about how to begin. And mm. I think all of us can probably use some motivation there. You open it talking about setting a worthy goal. And there's kind of three yeah. thoughts. You call them thrilling, important, and daunting. Would you take a couple yes. of minutes on each of them as people sure. are thinking about how to set a, how to set a worthy goal? Worthy is a, has a, some gravitas to it. And then take yeah. us as long as you'd like through the thrilling, important, and daunting lens. Sure. Yeah, you know, in, in part, uh, it was a reaction to the whole idea of smart goals. Like I, you know, like everybody, I'm into, I'm experimenting with chat GPT at the moment, this new AI thing. And I typed in something and said, tell me about goals. And it gave me this long spiel about smart goals. So if any, people know anything about goals, they're going to know smart goals. And I was thinking, I have never liked that model. <laughs> it's never worked for me. I've never really used it. It's never really stuck. So I wanted to find an alternative to smart goals because as well as not quite being able to remember exactly what smart stands for, one of the things that frustrated me about SMART goals is it didn't speak to ambition. It didn't speak to the bigger picture about what am I really trying to achieve here? It kind of was all about shrinking things down. 
So in Thrilling, Important and Daunting, the three attributes of a worthy goal, I'm really trying to tap into the three key strands of something that will make it worthy of your life, worthy of your time, worthy of your focus. It's not a sort of moralistic worthiness. It's is this worthy for you to actually commit to? So thrilling is the best place to start because it's, it asks the question, you know, really, does, will this light me up? Does this make you rub your hands together and go, this sounds fantastic? And the insight behind it is that a lot of us inherent goals that we think we should do or we must do or this is the appropriate thing for me to be doing right now. A friend of mine has spent 20 years talking to me about how she needs to write a book. She's a brilliant coach. She's a leadership expert. She's got some great thoughts around this, but she's been putting it off for 20 years. And when we talked about thrilling, important and daunting, she finally owned up to the fact that writing a book is thoroughly unthrilling for her. So she could just take it off the list. As important as thrilling is, I don't want goals that people take on. This is me being selfish, but I don't want goals people taking on just to be about them, just to be about bettering their lives. I want them to be contributing to a better world for all of us. Whether that is your team or your household or your community or your neighborhood or your country or your organization, or maybe it's some sort of global movement, fantastic. But wherever it is, how do you think about this is a way that I can give more to the world than I take? That's a quote from Jacqueline Novogratz, uh, who wrote a manifesto for a moral revolution. There's a TED talk around that. But I think that's such a powerful phrase. How do I give more to the world than I take? And it just feels to me that if everybody was oriented to that, this might be a better world for us to live in. So that's thrilling and important. But you could do thrilling and important and still be stuck because you're in your comfort zone. So the third element is to say, how do you find your edge? Because one of my key beliefs and I guess insights from the book is we unlock our greatness by taking on the hard stuff. And daunting is when you go, look, this sounds important and it sounds thrilling. And I don't totally know how to do this. <laughs> I, I kind of know how to make the first few steps, but I can't really see how this plays out. I can't really see the end point, but it is in taking on the hard things that we unlock our greatness and we unlock the next best version of who we are. So if you're thinking to yourself, I think I should keep evolving and growing and expanding my potential and my capacity and my courage and all of that, well then finding something that's gonna stretch you is important. And that's the third element, thrilling, important, and then finally daunting. Uh, Michael, in our remaining minutes, let's talk about another concept you teach called this, not that. You know, Jim yes. Collins, good to great, built to last, how the mighty fall yep. and so on, talks a lot about your to-do list and your not to-do list. But this is yep. a little bit different than that. It's actually grounded in a great story early in your career, the wildly successful and world-renowned launch, I think, of a whiskey brand. Would you maybe retell <laughs> some of that story, truthfully, yeah. and talk about how important it is for this exercise to exist, this, not that, as sure. we're beginning worthy goals in our life? Yeah, so um, my first job when I finally made it out of university was in the world of innovation and new product development. And I had a small hand in a number of things, such as helping with the stuffed crust pizza launch, um, and then helping for Diageo, a big whiskey and spirits maker, invent a brand new single malt whiskey for them. This is back in the 90s before whiskey was cool. 
that whiskey has gone on to be rated the worst single malt whiskey ever invented. And, you know, I can claim a small role in that. But part of working with brands, which is part of the, 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 the remit for this company, was you needed to know what a brand was and what it wasn't. And people struggle. You know, if I said to you, you know, what's the essence of Nike or what's the essence of Virgin, you'd either have kind of the obvious cliches or you'd be stuck. And what people ended up doing to try and create, you know, a, a metaphor is worth a thousand words is um, create pictures. So, you know, Virgin is high class, not low class. It's Rolls Royce, not um, mini minor. It is um, uh, vodka martini, not old fashioned. And you're, what you're creating are pairs of words that take you closer to the thing and also hold up a contrast to what that thing is not. So you get a sense of the vibe of the brand. And I took it from branding into personal growth, which is like, we have our this, not that. And your this column is a description of you at your best. This is what it looks like when you're showing up, when you're feeling brave, when you're feeling in the zone, when you're feeling in the spotlight and it's the right spotlight. It's what calls you forth. And not that, it's not when you're failing, but when you're kind of 15% off your game. I mean, other people might not even be able to tell, but you know that you're kind of not playing to the person that you actually are. And building out these pairs of words for you allows you more easily to get back to the best version of who you are. And that's important when you think about a worthy goal, because when you take on a worthy goal, it is daunting. You will be under pressure. You will struggle. There will be moments of doubt. There'll be moments where you're like, I am suboptimal in some way, whilst I try and take this important, thrilling, daunting thing on. And having a this, not that list allows you to figure out where you're selling yourself short and access and remember and perhaps get back to the better version of you. So pairs of words I have are things like step forward, not step back. Hold it lightly rather than take it seriously. Be provocative, not sycophantic. And these are all ways I've seen myself behave. And I know the best version of me is holding it lightly, being a bit provocative, uh, stepping forward rather than running away from stuff. And that helps me remember the best version of Michael. I thought the exercise was brilliant to appeal to your Aussie, Canadian, British use of that <laughs> word. Really, I have now like a teach chart in my office at my house this, not that, thinking about how I want to show up, how I want right. to be known, how I want my friends to refer to me. It's a great exercise. The book is How to Begin, Start Doing Something That Matters Most. Michael, um, you have a cult following of people that read your books and listen to your podcast <laughs> and attend your programs. Um, by your calculations, you have uh, 20 years and about eight and a half months left. Mm. The clock is ticking, my friend. Your death date is September yeah. 15, 2043. According yeah. to you, you've got about maybe um, four big projects left. My guess is you're going to live way beyond that. How, how old was your father when he passed? He was uh, in his early 80s. Yeah, you got plenty of time. You got, you got, yeah, yeah. Your, your death date is premature. You're going to be like 2056, <laughs> something like that. What's, um, for, the, for the legions that follow you and read your books and hang on your words and find yeah. your tenacity and your positivity contagious, what's next for you? 
Well, I have a new book coming out um, middle of this year called How to Work with Almost Anyone. Um, you know, right at the start of this conversation, you talked about how the coaching habit was really kind of connecting to how do you build better working relationships with people. And this digs even deeper into that, which is our working relationships are what make us happy and what make us successful. And most of the time, we just cross our fingers and hope for the best. <laughs> and inevitably, it goes off the rails. And often, we don't know what to do when the relationship gets a little bit cracked. So this book offers a, a process and another five good questions to help you build a relationship that is safe and vital and repairable. So that's exciting. So I'm thinking about that. And then next year, 2024, I've got two books slated to come out. One, a book on how change works in organization. And one, a book of journals about powerful questions that make you sit down and go, what am I doing? And who am I? And what really matters? So I'm, I'm really trying to get into this writing thing. Having books coming out isn't directly tied to identifying as a writer, but it's not a bad proxy for, for progress and success. One of the things I like most about your books is for someone who doesn't know you, when they finish reading their, your book, they know you well because you let oh, your, you. your personality shine through. I loved the tribute to your father, the photograph of your father holding you at the end. It's a lovely gift. Thank you. Um, MBS, not that MBS, but this <laughs> MBS. Thank you for joining us today. Scott, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate you. And we'll see you back next week for a new conversation on leadership.